The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Uh, guys, there's an opportunity for us. We're going to have a men's day, a men's day away, uh, Saturday, July 26th at 9 o'clock at Weber's uh, paintball tournament. There's a table in the hallway. Sign up. And uh, I'm going to be, I'm your official referee, so I'll be there to referee for you guys. So one eye and all, I'll get you, I'll catch you if you cheat, so you better watch out. Uh, take a look at the bulletin, there are opportunities. We need a few guys to usher because uh, uh, summer's ending, fall's coming. Also, uh, at TBC Community, is a huge deal for us. We're going to continue to push you towards smaller groups. And if you'd like to be trained to lead those groups, there's an opportunity coming up for that. We'll baptize the end of August, and there are two opportunities to meet regarding baptism as well. So take a look at uh, each of those things in the bulletin. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Therefore, fear God. Worship. Solomon rebukes ritualistic, passionless worship, and he concludes by offering a simple instruction. Fear God. Does it matter to God if the songs that we sing are 200 years old, two years old, or two days old? Does it matter to God if we come wearing suits and ties or come wearing slacks or shorts? Does it matter to God? Does it matter to God the way that we look versus the way that our heart is? You see, when Solomon rebukes ritualistic, passionless worship, He's talking about worship that is not true from the heart. He's talking about worship that is routine, worship that is habitual, versus worship that comes from the heart of man. So he begins by rebuking this passionless, ritualistic worship. He says obedience is better than sacrifice. If you look at verse 1, he says, first of all, to guard your steps as you go to the house of God. The word house of God is temple. Solomon was the builder of the temple. So Solomon must be looking at what's happening around the temple, and he has some concerns. As we've said, oftentimes in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like traveling through a dark, dark tunnel, and every once in a while there's a shaft of light. This is that shaft of light. These seven verses, I believe, are a shaft of light as Solomon looks, and he does it in a negative way once again because that's the way that he's wired in this entire book. But he says, I've got a problem with what's going on in the temple. There's a problem in the temple. There's a problem in the house of God. And it has to do with worship gone wrong. It has to do with the problem of worship in the temple. And the first problem is there's no obedience, and obedience is much better than sacrifice. He says... First of all, to guard your steps. Guard your steps. Pay attention to where you're going. One of the songs we sang talk about where our feet lead us. 
He's saying, pay attention to where you're going. Guard your steps. When I was a little kid growing up in a little church in New Orleans, we used to sing a song, be careful little mouth what you say, be careful little mouth what you say. There's a father up above, he's looking down with love. You know that song? One of the verses is, be careful little feet where you go. Be careful little feet where you go. There's a father up above, he's looking down with love, so be careful little feet where you go. That's what Solomon is saying. Your feet ever betray you? Your feet ever take you someplace you wish you hadn't gone? Your feet ever take you and, and you're thinking, what in the world am I doing here? We went on vacation a couple of weeks ago, as I told you, we were in the upper area of Michigan, and uh, I didn't know this, but there are sand dunes in Michigan. That's one of them there. Uh, this is an older picture, and uh, so the couple we were with, uh, we decided the girls would go shopping. He and I, Mike and I, would go hike the sand dune. Well, Mike weighs about 165 pounds. I weigh 240 pounds. And, you know, for him, he would sink uh, ankle deep in those dunes. I would be knee deep in the dunes. And, and as we headed there, I thought, well, there's the peak. I can do that. I'm in decent shape. I go and lift weights three times a week. I, I walk two or three times a week. I, I can climb that. Well, that was the beginning of the dune. That was just the first peak, and there were about six more like that. So as he continued to climb, my feet betrayed me. They went places I thought they should not go. And so we stopped about three-quarters of the way up, and I thought, this is idiotic. What are we doing here? And uh, we pretended we saw the lake and turned around and went back. <laughs> he says, guard your steps. To change the direction of your feet, you have to change the direction of your what? Heart. To change the direction of your feet, you have to change the direction of your heart. And so when Solomon says, guard your steps, he's really saying, guard your heart, guard your life, guard your behavior. In fact, then he tells them what to do. Draw near. To draw near means to, means to be intimate with, to be intimate to, to come close to. Sometimes Bev will be walking by in, in the house, or I'll be walking by, and, and, and I'll say, hey, babe, come here. We, or I'll go to her and just give her a hug. We are drawing near. Drawing, that's the concept, to draw near to, to be next to, to be intimate with. A worshiper has intimacy with, draws near to God. Draw near to what? Look at what it says. Draw near to listen. To listen. It's interesting that a particular Hebrew word used here is the word for obey. It means to obey more than it means to listen with your ears. It means to listen with the intent of responding. And so the concept is you draw near to God to hear from him so you can take action. You hear from God to, to hear what he says so you can take action. How do we listen to God? Romans says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. You want to hear from God, you become a man or woman of, of the word of God. Now, God can speak to you in any number of ways. We've seen in the Old Testament many times God speaks in visions and dreams and all these ways. We're going to see in a second he says be careful with your dreams. Be careful about that. God has given us a full revelation in Jesus Christ. He's given us a fully intended revelation. And I would say this, if you have a dream, a vision, or a word, or whatever it might be, and it's contradictory to this, you're, whatever you're doing is wrong, and this is always right, period. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You want to hear from God, you become a man or woman of the word of God. That's where you hear from God primarily. And so you hear from God. He says, you hear to listen. 
You're here to listen. It's like when you tell your kiddos, uh, our, our kiddos, uh, the bedrooms are upstairs, and I would say, Daniel, your shoes are on the steps. Well, I didn't mean for him to just observe that. He's a bright young man. I, I meant, Daniel, when you head upstairs, I didn't have to say it all. Daniel, your shoes are on the steps, so when you see them and go upstairs, take them up with you. That's the concept. You go to the Word, to hear the Word, to listen to the Word, and then to respond to the Word, not just to increase your knowledge of the Word. You draw near, you have intimacy, you listen to, you obey. That, that, that is, you are close to God, you have intimacy. And Gary, I want that. Gary, I don't want to be distant from God. Gary, I, I don't want my life to be a desert. I, I, I don't want to be involved in the wrong kind of worship. Worship gone wrong. So what do I do? Well, the problem Solomon identifies, the problem he calls him out on, the problem he rebukes them about is, is found right there. He says, it's better to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So the problem with worship gone wrong is offering the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. So we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to offer the sacrifice of fools? Obviously, the person who is not close to God, the person in ritualistic, passionless worship, is the person who's offering the sacrifice of fools. So what's a sacrifice of fools? I'll pass out some index cards. You write it down, put your name on it, and I'll start reading your answers. How's that? What's a sacrifice of fools? I mean, he says, draw near to God. Don't be like these other people who are involved in ritualistic, passionless worship who offer the sacrifice of fools. What does that mean? I believe, and I'll show you in a second, I believe it means gone through the motions, gone through the routine without heart. It's religion and ritual without true transformation. It's a major issue in the Old Testament, the life of Israel, and in our spiritual lives as well. That's why I began the way we did the service. It's easy to get involved or bogged down in ritual and in habit and forget why we're here. became a problem in the Old Testament. In Psalm 51, David's writing, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are, number one, a broken spirit. Number two, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. David's not saying that the the whole sacrificial system is invalid. He's not saying we shouldn't bring sacrifices, but he's saying if we bring sacrifices without bringing our heart, we're wasting our time. If you show up to worship and you you come here, but but really it's because your wife dragged you here, your husband dragged you here, or because it's good for business to be here, it's good to be seen in a place like TBC with all the people around, or or you're here just for something else, rather than to honor the living God, he, he says what God really wants from you is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. He wants you to be broken before him. Gary, what does that mean? Are you broken before God? Brokenness is when you stand before him and say, I have nothing to offer but myself to you. That's it. That's a broken spirit. I've been broken so many times over the past year. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've just thrown myself before God in the face of God, and I'm coming to the end of my year-long treatment process, and you know, in some ways it's a great thing to be done. Minimal side effects. I'm so grateful. But honestly, it's also a mystery. It's something that I'm not looking forward to because after this, there's nothing I can do, period. And so he said, well, there's nothing you could do before. You're right. 
but I'm 59 years old. There's not another thing I can do to ward this off the rest of my life, period. Except for you to pray, for me to pray, to trust God, and I go to glory when he takes me, period. That's what we're all in, right, Gary? We are. But you talk about broken before God on your knees, on your face, trusting him every single day like never before. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Is God saying I, I, I made a mistake by instituting the law and everything associated with it? This is from the first chapter of Isaiah. He's saying I don't want you to bring this stuff anymore. Is God saying everything I did was wrong by instituting this? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the problem is you come but you leave your heart at home. You come out of habit. You come out of ritual. You don't come to honor me. You don't come in brokenness. You don't come to give of yourself. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. He says, even if you pray, I quit listening. Because you don't come to me with the right reasons. You don't come to me with the right heart. You you, you don't come with a broken and contrite heart. In Malachi, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God says, I wish that one of you talking to the priest was man enough to close the temple down because you're bringing worthless sacrifices. Wow. Sounds pretty stern, doesn't it? You say, Gary, where's the grace in all this? It's everywhere. God is saying, come to me. Come to me in your brokenness. Come to me in your weariness. Come and recognize that I am the one who gives to you. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools. Don't don't come and have your worship gone wrong. There's a song we used to sing, one of the early praise songs. Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me, this is what I pray. Change my heart, O God. For some of us, that needs to be our prayer this morning. That needs to be our confession this morning. God, my heart is far from you. God, I, I, all I do, the only time I think about you really, God, is either when I'm in a, in a, in a bind or when I show up to church on Sunday mornings, that's it. Otherwise, my relationship to you is distant, void, or non-existent. And I pray for you that this morning's a morning of confession. You don't want to live in that desert any longer. You don't want to live in that battle any longer. There's an old saying from, there's that uh, song, I forgot I had it up there. There's an old saying from Togo, wherever the heart is, the feet don't hesitate to go. If you want to change your feet, if you want to guard your steps, you change your heart. You change your heart. Solomon goes on, and he says, uh, if you want to overcome ritualistic, passionless worship, brevity is better than volume in prayer. Brevity is better than volume in prayer. Where do you get that, Gary? Look at verse 2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. 
Solomon's looking around the temple once again, and, and there are a lot of words. There, there are wild promises being made in the assembly. There, there are uncommitted, uh, unguarded commitments being made. There, there are vain repetitions being made. There are vows being made that will not be carried out. All these things are done void of heart. So, Gary, should I pray less? That's not what Solomon's saying. Gary, should, should, I, should, I, should I not be on my knees? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not the point. But rather, that prayer is not about the, the number of words you use, but the condition of your heart. Jesus understood that problem. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you pray, you're not to pray like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, you go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, uh, who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret shall reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying at his time the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, they believed not in necessarily the heart that was in prayer, but they believed in the ritual of prayer. And so prayer had become quite ritualistic. It was a formal exercise. There there were appointed times to pray. There were prayers that were written out for everything. There were prayers before you walked into a room, prayers when you walked out of a room. There were prayers before and after each meal. There were prayers in connection with the new light, with the new moon, with fire, with lightning, with comets, with rain, with the sight of a sea, the sight of a lake, the sight of a river, when you received good news, when you entered a city, when you left a city. Everything had become habitual and ritualistic. That's the only time they prayed. They become a ritual become a ritual. This is Ramadan. Did you know that? This is the month of Ramadan. Ramadan is when our Muslim friends honor Allah. And so they have a point five times a day they pray. Appointed times of prayer. You know, for us, for some, an appointed time of prayer is better than no time of prayer. But the reality, it can become a ritualistic piece of verbiage if we're not careful. He says, don't be repetitious. Don't use vain repetition. You know, you know what's interesting? You know what occurs right after that? He says, uh, don't use vain repetition, meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Right after that is what? Do you know what the next section of Scripture is? The Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If there is ever a prayer that is said in meaningless repetition, that's it. How many times do I stick my hand in a huddle before a basketball game, football game, whatever else, and, and just say those words not meaning anything? I'm sure I'm the only one guilty of that. Right there, he says that. Right before that. He says, when you pray, you pray. You pray not as a Gentile. It's not the volume of words, but it's your heart. Let me give you two applications on prayer. The problem today is not so much prideful praying as not praying. Billy Graham's wife, when she was alive, said the tragedy of our day is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. Not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. I, honestly, when it comes to the issue of school prayer, 
I, I hear all these people beating their chest and screaming out loud. One of the biggest problems in America is we don't pray in school anymore. I want to ask them, how many of you pray at home with your kids? I mean, how many of you pray at home with your kids? It's one thing to scream about what the world and the culture is not doing. I'm not saying I'm against that, but the reality of it is my question is don't go around beating the drum of what everybody else should be doing and what the government should be doing, what they've taken away from us if you're not doing it. So don't go screaming, yeah, we need school prayer if you're not even praying with your own kids at home. I would say the biggest problem is not lack of prayer in school, but lack of prayer at home. That's the bigger problem. The bigger problem are parents who never pray with their kids, parents who are absent from their kids, parents not involved in the lives of their kids, parents that their kids never hear and pray. And so we look at this and we recognize there's a problem. Samuel Chadwick said this, The one concern of the devil is to keep saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, nothing from prayerless work, nothing from prayerless religion. He laughs at our toils, he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Folks after, often ask me, Gary, how, how should I pray? I mean, what, you know, uh, what, what position? A, a priest, a minister, and a guru were discussing the best positions for prayer. There was a telephone repairman working nearby. The priest said, kneeling is definitely the best way to pray. The minister said, no, I get the best results standing with my hands outstretched to heaven. The guru said, you're both wrong. The most effective prayer position is lying down on the floor. The repairman couldn't retain himself, contain himself any longer. He said, hey, fellas. The best praying I ever did when I was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. (laughs) Prayer. You want to know how to deepen your prayer life? Don't attend a conference on prayer. Pray. Don't prepare to pray. Pray. Don't engage in discussion and seminars about prayer, but pray. Be involved in prayer. Then you see God answer prayer. And it's a marvelous thing, isn't it? I've kept prayer cards for a number of years. I'm not doing it anymore, but for a number of years I had prayer cards, and one of the things I love to see were things scratched off that list, God answering prayer. You see God responding? As you come to the Father and you ask of Him? I love the story of the lady who received a phone call that her daughter was sick uh, with a fever. She needed to stop by a pharmacy on her way home to get medication for her. When she got back to her car after going to get it, she realized she had locked her keys inside of her car. Uh, She wanted to get home to her sick daughter, didn't know what to do. So she started searching around, and she found a rusty old coat hanger on the ground. And she went there and started fiddling with the car. She had no idea what to do. So she bowed her head and said, God, you've got to help me. I need to get this medicine to my daughter. I can't get into my car. What should I do? At that moment, a gentleman tapped her on her shoulder, said, Ma'am, can I help you? She said, Yeah, I'm trying to get this medicine to my daughter. My keys are locked into it. He said, yeah, Back up. I'll take care of that for you. In a matter of about 30 seconds, he popped open the car lock, and away she, she, she got ready to leave. She reached over and gave the guy a big hug, and through tears, she said, Thank you so much. You're such a nice man. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, he said, ma'am, it's no problem. I just got out of prison for car theft. (laughs) The woman hugged the man, and she looked up to heaven and said, thank you, God, for answering my prayers and sending me a professional. (laughs) God answers prayer, doesn't he? (laughs) He answers prayer. It's better to have a heart without proper words than proper words without a heart. That's what Solomon's saying. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying it's not the volume of words. There was a song written by a guy named Joe Jones back in the 60s, You Talk Too Much. Anybody remember that song? You talk too much, you worry me to death. You talk too much, even worry my pets. You talk about people you don't even know. You talk about people wherever you go. You talk about people you've never seen. You talk about people you make me want to scream. You just talk, you just talk, you just talk too much. You know anybody like that? Don't raise your hands. There are times I want to ask a person, does your train of thought have a caboose on it? I mean, does it? I love the weatherman who said, my wife Hazel, she talks at 90 miles an hour with gust up to 120. <laughs> Prayer is not about... <laughs> That's great. Class dismissed. <laughs> Prayer is not about the volume of words. It's not dreamlike babbling. That's what he says. It's not that. It's coming to God with brokenness. And then finally he concludes and he says... When you make a vow to God, don't be late in paying it. Pay what you vow. It's better not to make a vow than you should vow and not pay it. You ever make a vow before God? Old Testament is filled with people making vows. Hannah says, you give me a son, he can be yours, and Samuel is. Jonah's sinking into the ocean. In the belly of a fish, he makes vows with God. He keeps it and becomes a preacher in Nineveh. David talks about paying vows in Psalm 22 and he pays those vows. In Judges chapter 11, there's a judge named Jephthah. He makes a stupid vow. I, no, I can't use that word. He makes a dumb vow. <laughs> Got grandkids, that word comes out of your vocabulary. He, he makes a, a harsh, rash vow. He says, God, if you'll help me destroy the Ammonites, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house, I'll offer as a sacrifice. He comes back. Guess what walks out of the door of his house first? His daughter. His daughter. A rash, dumb vow. And Solomon says, I see people making vows I have no intention of keeping. In Acts chapter 9, is a story of two people. It's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They made a vow before God. God, we're going to sell a field and give you everything we have. They didn't do it. You remember what happened to them? God struck them both dead. One of the reasons we don't do pledges at TBC, I don't want to be doing all these funerals for people that vow and don't pay up. He says, if you're going to come before God and say, God, I'm going to do this, you do it. You do it. You keep your word before the living God. You come before God and you say, this is what we're going to do. Now, let me tell you, the biggest vow that's broken today before God, whenever I do a wedding, I stand before that young couple who just did one yesterday, and the scriptures say, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And we make a vow and we don't keep it. And so if you've broken that vow, I, I pray that you get right before God and recognize don't make a vow if you don't intend to keep it. Solomon's looking around and he says worship has gone wrong. Things in the new building, the temple, are not right. There are big crowds, there's a lot of activity, but it's ritualistic, passionless worship. So he concludes with a warning. Fear God. Fear God. When you show up to worship and it's all about you, fear God. When you show up to worship and it's what I can receive and not give, fear God. 
That when you show up to worship, and I'm not just talking about on Sundays, I mean on your knees before God on a regular basis, when you worship Him, you recognize He's a great God who deserves all. So be faithful and not fickle when you make a vow before Him. God and not ourselves should be the focus of worship. Obey Him. Draw near to Him. Don't trifle with Him by making promises you don't intend to keep. Mike Iaconelli writes these words, How did we end up so comfortable with God? How did our awe of God get reduced to lukewarm appreciation? How did God become our pal and friend rather than the heart-stopping presence before us? How can we think of Him without remembering His ground-shaking, thunder-crashing, stormy exit on the cross? How can we not stop and catch our breath and say, this is no ordinary God that we worship? Worship is not about Him. It's not about us. It's all about Him. Worship team, are you here? I'm done early. Those guys don't have a clue. We're ready. Terry, you won't run out to Bobby's office, tell him to get himself up here. <laughs> Where is he? Got a few up. There you go. Get yourself up here. Matt Redman. How many of you heard the name Rat Redman? Rat, Matt, Rat, Matt Redman before. Matt Redman was a worship leader. And uh, his pastor came to him and said, I feel like the worship in our church has become ritualistic. Good to see you. <laughs> become ritualistic. And he said, we've got to do something different. And he said... Uh, we're going to sing, but we're not going to use instruments one week. And then we're going to come one week, and we're not even going to sing. We're just going to hear the word, and we're going to come one week, and we're just going to pray. And we're going to do all those things. He said, I fear that we're focusing upon ourselves, and we become evaluators of worship rather than experiences of worship. And so for a month in their church, they did things totally different. One Sunday, they just came and prayed. No message, no music. One Sunday they came and there was no band, but there were, uh, what do you call it when there's no music? Uh, something. Anyway. Like the Church of Christ people do. Acapella. Hey, I already lost one. hard for me to think. I've already lost one eye this morning. (laughs) So you know what Redmond did? Redmond wrote a song. Terry, can you flip to the next thing? I don't have my deal. Next slide. There we go. It's called The Heart of Worship. Know that song? You go the words for me? When the music fades and everything's stripped away and I simply come longing to bring something that's worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song because a song in itself is not what you required. It's not a sacrifice you require. That's what they wrote in the Old Testament. But what's he going to bring? Keep going through it for me, Terry. There we go. You search much deeper within. The way things appear, you're looking into my heart. So I'm coming back to the heart of worship. What's the heart of worship? The heart of worship is him. It's not you. It's not me. It's not them. It's not us. It's him. Worship has gone wrong 
when the focus is on anything or anyone besides him. It's only appropriate that we stand and make him famous together by singing this song.